Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. I am honored to introduce our guest speaker this evening. He is an award-winning historian and author. He's a history professor at Rice University. He's also the presidential historian for CNN. Dr. Douglas Brinkley is here with us this evening to present and talk about his latest book, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Land of America. I would say that this book is essential for anyone who cherishes our national parks and forests, wildlife conservation, and Douglas really shows us a different aspect of FDR and his role in creating and improving all of these parks and trails for us here in America that we enjoy today. So to tell us more, and without further ado, please help me welcome Dr. Douglas Brinkley. Good evening, guys. It's wonderful to be here. I, it's not pandering to say I never, every time I bring a book, I come to Tattered Cover, because it's what a great flagship store and they take the time to report to the New York Times bestseller list which is always uh, a little bit of extra paperwork but authors greatly appreciate that they do that here um I wrote and came here a few years back I did a book called The Wilderness Warrior Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America and the genesis of that book was when I was a child my mother and father were high school teachers and we grew up in Ohio and we got our they got their summers off and we had a Pontiac station wagon and a coachman trailer and we would go all over America with the big family vacation visiting our country's seminal national park so by the time I was 18 or went off to college I had been to Yellowstone and Yosemite and Grand Canyon and Everglades and Rocky Mountain National Park and Carlsbad Caverns on and on and it had a gigantic impact on me um cut to some years back maybe a decade ago I started going up to the badlands of North Dakota to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, one that my parents never took me to, that we had gone went to the Badlands of South Dakota, but not up in North Dakota. And I just fell in love with it up there. If you go there today, you're guaranteed to see antelope and um, buffalo, prairie dog towns. And this was where Theodore Roosevelt spent his Wild West years. And I realized that that was sort of the birthplace of the conservation movement, his ranch there, because, you know, he discovered North Dakota, Theodore Roosevelt. Let me just say a couple things about TR before I get into FDR. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was born 1858. His mother was from Georgia. His father was from New York. Tells you 1858 what? The Civil War. A child growing up in Manhattan in the middle of the Civil War with a mother that loved Robert E. Lee and a father who loved Lincoln and Grant. And um, they had horrible fights. And Theodore Roosevelt turned his back on really the South and the North and felt that Nirvana was the American West. Um, that this was going to be the new Garden of Eden. He got ex- seen extremely excited about the West as a boy. Not just for that one reason, meaning the South screwed up with slavery and the North screwed up with hyper-industrialization, but because the boys' magazines of the 1860s and 1870s were starting to show photographs of Crater Lake in Oregon or Mesa Verde in in, uh, Colorado, and this was the first time people were starting to understand all these extraordinary treasured landscapes in the West and see photographic evidence of them in a, in a mass marketed way. Um, and young Theodore Roosevelt, beyond being born in 1858, he was just one year old when Charles Darwin published On the Origins of Species, came out in 1859. That book got lost in the hubbubaloo of the Civil War, uh, but it did not get lost on Theodore Roosevelt's father, 
who became an ardent Darwinian, a lover of Darwin, and so did Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, Robert Barnwell Roosevelt. Uncle Robert, his uncle Rob, called himself a a Darwinian scientist. He wrote Darwin-like essays about frogs and eels. He wrote a book called um, The Waterfowl of Florida. He wrote a book on Lake Superior. And meanwhile, his father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr., is the founder of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And so young Theodore Roosevelt was enamored with conservation and the outdoor life, the natural world, so much so that he went to Harvard and majored in what we would call today wildlife biology and wrote a book as an undergraduate, his first book called The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks. And the big thing for Theodore Roosevelt was believing that nature had a curative effect on people. Living in New York City, Theodore Roosevelt was ill with asthma. There's, I just picked up at the Denver airport, and it's almost a defunct magazine now, but Newsweek today is talking about the rates of asthma in Detroit from the factories that are there and how whole communities of children are asthmatic. It's a cover story of Newsweek. Uh, it's a follow-up to the Flint crisis. With Theodore Roosevelt's New York City, he was so chronically sick with asthma due to the bad air. But when he got to the Catskills and the Adirondacks, he felt like a million bucks. And so he started feeling healthy in these outdoor um, environments far from the, what they used to call the devil's laboratory of the cities. And um, so, but to get... But Theodore Roosevelt went, you know, we got deeply involved with the natural world, but he went into politics and was a state senator there in Albany when he got a a young reformist Republican, when a a runner of a Western Union telegram came up and on the message, it said um, it was from his brother and it said, Theodore, get in and back to New York City. Mother is burning up with fever and Alice is giving birth. And it's um, so double message. He rushed from Albany to New York City. It's still gaslit New York and goes to the Brownstone. Theodore Roosevelt was born in New York, as I mentioned, in 1858. That same building on one floor, his mother had 104 fever with Bright's disease. Other floor, his wife had burning fever, having a difficult childbirth. He would shuttle from floor to floor checking up on the two women that meant everything in his life. And they both died that night. It was Valentine's day and he lost them both and a deep and dark depression fell over him. And in his diary, he put an X through it and wrote the light is burned out of my life forever. And it's a amazing document to, to things, meaning he was very um, depressed that's when his sister took the baby who survived, Alice Longworth Roosevelt, and um, he went out. The Northern Pacific Railroad was being built connecting Seattle, really, to New York City, but they're building it from Atlantic to Pacific, and it meet in the middle for the spike ceremony. He got off in the western Dakota Territory, Medora, North Dakota, where Theodore Roosevelt National Park is. And that began his years in the wilderness and where he wrote about grizzly bear and he wrote about um, the Little Missouri River. He wrote some beautiful pieces about the ranching life, hunting life, but also served as an ornithologist of the region and wrote about the ecosystem, as we call it today. Um, I mention all this because I said that's where I think the modern conservation movement becomes born. Because it was there in Medora that he decides he wants a buffalo head. It was popular to have a buffalo head because they, uh, as a taxidermy-like trophy on your wall. Well, we used to have 60, 50, 60 million buffalo herding across America, thunderous herds. They've all been slaughtered. And it was down to about, you know, 2,000 buffalo only left before extinction. And here Theodore Roosevelt's looking to go kill one because he wants that. He loves the animal so much. He wants one for his wall. And he had to hire the single best hunt guide money could buy. 
And even with that Buffalo guide, it took him over a week to find the Buffalo. They were so few left. He eventually shot one and they did a Native American dance around it. And they cut out the tongue and ate the hump. Those were the delicacies when you would eat it back then. And he shipped the head off to St. Paul to be mounted. And it went to Sagamore Hill, his home in Long Island. Well, that would just be another dead buffalo story, except TR got haunted by it and decided we are going to restore and bring all the mammals back to North America. And he rushes back to New York and creates the American Bison Society, Boone and Crockett Club, all these ideas of bringing back the mammals that were have been so depleted, so slaughtered. The buffalo was hated by everybody. The, um, the cavalry couldn't stand them because they were the food supply for the Native Americans. So in the Indian Wars, they would slaughter the buffalo willy-nilly as many as they could to take away that, the substance for Native peoples. The railroads hated the buffalo because they'd come to training at night, hits a big herd, and it derails the train. So they wanted them dead. And the telegraph companies hated the buffalo because they love to scratch their backs on those poles. And it's like a ton of weight and they collapse. So nobody liked them when Theodore Roosevelt's starting this. And it was hugely successful, so much so he went to the Bronx Zoo Theodore Roosevelt and personally raised a herd of buffalo, genetically perfect one. It was harder to do than you think. Um, and got a show, uh, a train and brought them back to uh, Oklahoma, Wichita Mountain near Fort Sill. And all the native Indians thought the buffalo had disappeared down the top of the mountain and would someday come back. And here's Theodore Roosevelt with Comanche Chief Quanah Parker releasing all of those buffalo. And today when you travel the Great Plains and go in Colorado or Nebraska and you see buffalo, they're coming from that Bronx Zoo herd that Theodore Roosevelt rehabilitated. Um, Now, so TR becomes so famous with conservation um, and I don't have, and, and for compression's sake, let me just say that, you know, but he goes, fights in the Spanish-American War. He has his so-called crowded hour, July 1st, 1898, with the Rough Riders going into Cuba, up San Juan Hill. He comes back and goes into quarantine in Long Island. And this is July of 1898, and he's elected governor that November. Just a couple months. He was the big war hero. Admiral Dewey and Theodore Roosevelt were the great war heroes. And Theodore Roosevelt becomes governor and puts forward the most progressive natural resource management program ever thought of. He becomes this huge conservationist governor. He's trying to regulate factories from pollution, stop reckless timbering, stop the slaughtering of birds, um, uh, and, um, and wanting to issue a hunting license and all this regulation and, and protection. So much so that the Republican bosses, Mark Hanna, wanted to get rid of TR as governor. Being governor in New York was a big job back then, guys. We didn't have Florida and Texas and California with that kind of population. And so it was everything. Governor of New York was about as big as job, the only thing bigger is president. The only way they could get rid of TR was to put him on as VP for William McKinley. He takes the bait. And then, of course, McKinley gets shot in Buffalo, New York. And when they went looking for Theodore Roosevelt, the vice president, nobody could find him. He was lost in the wild. He did another one of his wilderness uh, adventures. He climbed to the top of Mount Marcy in the state of New York, the highest peak. And eventually they had to get to Theodore Roosevelt. A runner gets to him. He comes to Buffalo. And if you go to Buffalo today, there's one home where McKinley dies. And then the home where Theodore Roosevelt was sworn in as president. He refused to put his hand on a Bible. He's the only president that was not sworn in with the Bible. And then from 1901 to 1909, Theodore Roosevelt saves about 234 million acres of wild America on this wild revolutionary conservationist agenda. How does he do that? How do you just save these places? Well, as most of you probably know, there, the one mechanism that's been a constant is to become a national park. Congress has to approve it. And so we got a few of those. Mesa Verde here in Colorado was Theodore Roosevelt National Park. 
I mentioned Crater Lake. That was TR. Wind Cave, South Dakota, TR. But that, they didn't have a big appetite for these big parks, Congress. And so Roosevelt found two other major mechanisms to circumvent Congress. And the big one, and this all plays into FDR, the big one is the Antiquities Act of 1906. Because John Lacey, a Republican from Iowa who loved the outdoor life and the American landscapes and was very used as a kind of a trick almost, and a very, created an elastic bill, this Antiquities Act of 06, because people back then were coming around in the West and stealing dinosaur bones everywhere. And they were looting Native American sites, antiquity sites, you know, kivas or, or um, you know, um, uh, runes. And European museums were coming here and just looting and stealing, you know, petrified wood and all this for, for European markets. And so the Antiquities Act basically said the president of the United States has the executive power for science. To come in and it's like a murder site, that yellow plastic, you know, you, like for to put a, a five acre archaeological dig site under federal control, to put 16 acres of a native area under federal control with executive order. Theodore Roosevelt goes to the Grand Canyon, stands on the, the lip of the, the that divine abyss, as it's been called, and said to the effect do not touch it. God has made it. You will only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. Oh, he was surrounded by his Rough Riders who served with him in Cuba. Congress, a few years later, goes to mine the Grand Canyon for zinc, asbestos, and copper. They don't want it as a national park. Theodore Roosevelt grabs that Antiquities Act and applies it, which was meant for small acreage. He applies it to 600,000 acres of an executive order. And when people scream bloody murder about it, that that's that's not the spirit of the Antiquities Act, what it was meant for. And he said, it said science. Show me a better example of erosion at work than the Grand Canyon. And we can study that. And it got sued. The government got sued. It all went to the court. And Theodore Roosevelt won the court case. And this establishes presidents getting to use executive power to create national monuments. He did it with Muir Woods, California, and Devil's Tower, Wyoming, and on and on, TR. But that president is important. A couple weeks ago, I saw President Obama, and he came in, and he was uh, was very excited, and he told me he had just used TR's antiquities. I just signed three new national monuments in Nevada, uh, 1.7 million acres, Without a whole lot of media attention using that Antiquities Act mechanism. But, you know, when when Congress is asleep at the wheel, you usually like doing it on your way out, you know. Bill Clinton did it on his way out with the Escalante in in Utah. And it was so unpopular that when he did the creation of Clinton, the Escalante got saved, Colorado Plateau. Bill Clinton, do you know he gave the announcement of the creation at the Grand Canyon because they were afraid uh, for his his security if he went and did it in Utah? It was that controversial. Um, And the other mechanism Theodore Roosevelt had was um, he, he a hundred years ago, all the women here would have come wearing a, a hat with an ornamental feather. Just like the buffalo were slaughtered, they were slaughtering the heron and egrets. And guys, if there's something that has to be federally done, it's bird protection, right? I mean, it does no good to have the Connecticut Audubon Society with progressive laws and protecting the birds so the birds fly to Florida and get slaughtered. You've got to have federal laws for bird protection. But in Florida, there was a feather mafia, and they were slaughtering all these birds. They would come in with like semi-automatic weapons, boom, 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 pluck the one beautiful feather from each bird, steal the eggs, and all the rookeries were dying. To a point there, no flamingo were left in Florida, on and on. Theodore Roosevelt looked into the situation, what to do. And he said, what will stop me from declaring this entire Indian river region, a federal bird reservation? And the lawyer said, well, well, and before they can even answer, he said, I so declare it. <laughs> and Pelican Island, Florida is our nation's first wildlife refuge. It's called a federal bird reserve back then. 
Theodore Roosevelt creates 51 federal bird reservations using executive authority from out saving the albatross of, you know, Hawaii to an area of the Yukon Delta in Alaska is the size of West Virginia to the Gulf Islands off of Louisiana, on and on. 51. Theodore Roosevelt takes that 51. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt will take those 51 and in 1940 create U.S. Fish and Wildlife. That's the birth of it with Franklin. He not only does he inherit those 51 of TRs, but now we have 550 national wildlife refuges that belong to you guys because of TR and FDR. Um, And so you could see how kinetic TR and conservation was. Now, Franklin Roosevelt's born, he's the fifth cousin of Theodore. His Eleanor Roosevelt's, was the child of Theodore Roosevelt's brother who committed suicide, jumped out a window um, with depression. But um, Eleanor was, um, TR was her, really her male figure of guidance and advice. And so he, and he, it's his niece and Franklin Roosevelt marries Theodore Roosevelt's niece. It's pretty close. Not just that. Everything FDR does is modeled on Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt goes to Groton and Harvard. FDR goes to Groton and Harvard. Theodore Roosevelt runs for the state Senate of New York and heads Forest Fish Game Committee as his big thing he chairs in Albany. FDR does the same. Theodore Roosevelt becomes Assistant Secretary of the Navy. FDR becomes Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Theodore Roosevelt becomes Governor of New York. FDR becomes Governor of New York. Theodore Roosevelt becomes this huge conservation president. FDR becomes the huge conservation president. Um, And that's one of the first things you've got to understand of the influence of Franklin Roosevelt is is TR. Now, add to that, I mentioned he was born in Hyde Park, New York. That's on the Hudson River. And And if Theodore Roosevelt loved the Badlands and the West, FDR loves the scenic Hudson. 315 miles from Tier of the Clouds in the Adirondacks down to the Bay of where Manhattan is. Spectacular river. It's called the Rhine of America. Gorgeous. And a cavalcade of American history unfolds on the Hudson, whether it's the creation of West Point on the Hudson as a garrison and school, or whether it's George Washington holding up in Newburgh during the Revolution, or the Battle of Saratoga, or, um, you know, um, Rip Van Winkle lore and, you know, the whole um, the Hudson River School of Painters of pastoral landscape painting. Um, It is this big natural history protection movement up in the Catskills and Adirondacks and FDR is raised with that. Um, Furthermore, and, and wherever his whole life. Wherever he'd write, I've seen so many letters. He'd write, "Oh, I miss the Hudson. The Hudson's my life. It's the way, it's my blood. If I bleed, it all bleed the Hudson River." You know, really, somebody who had a sanctified landscape. It was his idyllic Hyde Park on the Hudson. He was born there. He lived his whole life in the same house, and he's buried there. Um, but FDR now, the big thing I want you to know about Franklin Roosevelt when he runs for state politics is he's an upstate New York politician and his occupation is tree grower. Whenever he'd fill out a form for occupation, he'd write tree grower, or tree farmer. He wasn't just being cute. That's how he made his money. He ran a giant tree plantation along the Hudson. And it's still up there today. Forestry is a big industry along that part, right near the Catskills, New Paltz, up the Hudson in there. And, um, you know, I've seen all the – he would take out ads in the New York Times and other papers, but just focus on the Times since it still survived today. There'd be ads that say, you know, buy your Christmas tree from Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, You know, have a New Deal Christmas. Get your trees directly from the president. He would send trees to Churchill and kings and queens came right from his tree farm. And keep in mind, guys, that that was his constituency. Farmers, apple growers, tree farmers. These were who he represented. He would get bitter if somebody at a program put in. He's from New York City. I've seen two letters where he wrote where somebody pinned in a program. Do never say I'm from New York City. I'm from Hyde Park. 
up the Hudson. Um, where and here's where it plays out politically different. Robert Caro, who's doing these wonderful volumes on Lyndon Johnson, wrote a book on Robert Moses called The Power Broker. Moses' view of recreation in the 1910s, 20s, 30s was New York City people leave the city for a half a day and go to Jones Beach or go just to, you know, right outside a little recreation, come back to the big, big city. FDR hated that. FDR said you've got to come up the river and spend three days upstate New York. Tourism, history, heritage, tourism, eco-tourism. It was dollars for his district. That was a big, it still is up there. History, tourism, and outdoor recreation is gigantic business upstate New York. FDR fights to have Places, um, you know, winter wonderlands for ski lifts upstate New York. And his whole life is about getting urban people to come upstate. Now, uh, for compression's sake, during World War I, FDR is, is um, Assistant Secretary of the Navy. But do you realize in 1920, he runs for vice president on James Cox's ticket. It's Cox and FDR. And they get beat badly by Warren Harding. So let me just pause you for a minute in that year, 1920, because that's when the conservation movement dies for a spell. Theodore Roosevelt died in 1919. He was such a larger than life persona on this issue, creating Boy Scouts and camping and parks. And he did it in his presidency and ex-presidency. And, you know, he went to the Amazon and Africa and promoting all this. When he died, nobody could fill that void. And in 20, Harding came in and Harding was a a Republican destined to try to unravel TR conservation. So you have Harding, Coolidge and Hoover in the 20s who are the antithesis of Theodore Roosevelt styled conservation. And they're in, in, in charge. So when FDR loses in 20, he goes back to Springwood and Hyde Park on the Hudson and so I'm going to run my tree farm, try to make a little bit of money uh, as a lawyer, and I'll um, run the Greater Boy Scouts of New York because Theodore Roosevelt ran the Greater Boy Scouts of New York. And he gets all these inner city kids from tenements, slums, poor kids, and gets them a kind of a getaway long weekend like he liked, those three days away from their urban angst and got them to go to Bear Mountain State Park. And at Bear Martin Mountain, FDR meets all the boys. He's the grand impresario. They toss horseshoes. You know, they have hot dog roasts. They canoe. And he goes swimming with the Boy Scouts. And he contracts the polio virus that August of 1921. Now, polio from the water. Polio does not manifest itself immediately like viruses have a, a, a few days of, of um, before they do. And he had left Bear Mountain and went to Campobello, New Brunswick, the main New Brunswick border where the family had a summer cottage. And the day before, the last day of, of, of his life where he could walk, he had gone out in a boat and was teaching his sons how to do forest fire protection and put out forest, a big cause of of FDR by 21 was far those those steel towers you see lookouts for how to coordinate fire forest fire protection and all of this and he goes back home after that day Campobello and he doesn't feel well he goes to bed early he's got the sweats he's restless has a migraine and he wakes up in the morning with zero feeling on the lower half of his body he cannot move and sheer and utter terror takes over him. Um, they are fearful of what it is. Polio words bandied about, but very carefully. And Eleanor Roosevelt comes to the swoops in. She's there. And it's Florence Nightingale. She didn't have to be Florence Nightingale. Their marriage was very strained. Franklin had had an affair with Lucy Mercer. She had discovered the love letters. Their marriage wasn't what it used to be. And suddenly, she now had to get him to New York City Hospital from Maine, get him back to Springwood. Guys, when FDR finally goes to Springwood with the reality, he can't walk. 
nobody wanted to be with him because being with a polio meant you can get it. They, we did not know how it was. People were so it, his from being this hot. I'm 1920. I'm Mr. VP for Cox. And we just won World War One and everything's grand to nobody wanting to be near him. Only his advisor, Lewis Howe from Saratoga Springs area would hang out with them. Howe had so many medical illnesses his own and had a, a, a life uh, that was almost subservient to Franklin Roosevelt. And Eleanor left to go do labor organizing, labor union organizing. And he's left there with the chipmunks and the woodchucks and the blue jays and the Hudson River. And he starts trying to build his upper body. He gets some strength. And then he has one friend who hangs with him a lot named Manswell Crosby, who I write about in Rightful Heritage. And Crosby is the top ornithologist upstate New York. The first organization FDR ever joined was the American Ornithological Union. And his um, now he hooks up with this great ornithologist. They go to Florida and he gets lost in the Everglades and tries to find himself down in that great great part of southern florida they their mission is to see how many birds doing a bird count of more species but he recognizes the sunshine and the water makes him feel better he soon after while he's in florida he writes a letter to robert sterling yard of the national parks uh, we've got to make the everglades a park he comes back up to new york and then buys a, a thermal water resort in warm springs georgia that becomes the summer the the little white house where he creates a resort for p- people with polio so they can swim eat play chess and he makes that a tree farm in georgia um in the 1920s and he decides to make a comeback in politics and he does it by giving the speech for al smith at madison square gardens And he's supposed to introduce Smith and give this speech. And he trains for it for months to have one son on one arm where he puts his weight on his son's arm and then like a cane. And he created this kind of movement. And when he walked that day to the podium, the whole audience was like, oh, my gosh, just like. And he grabbed the podium and that voice you all know. From his inaugural, you know, that, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. You know, the, that voice booms out. And after he gave that speech, and this almost seems apocryphal, but it isn't. He got an over one hour standing ovation. And the next day, the New York Times is he, Roosevelt steals the show. Roosevelt's back. Suddenly, he was a political player again. And he runs for governor of New York and wins. In 1928, he runs for governor again and wins in 1930. You all know the Wall Street crashes in 29, the financial ruin. Herbert Hoover gets the blame. Nothing good's happening, and he's the most high-profile, the Democratic governor from New York. And his big solution to problems was hiring unemployed boys, a little older than the Boy Scouts, to plant trees around New York and to build reservoirs and to save the re re energize and revitalize the landscape of New York. Um, This project he does with Morgenthau, his apple tree farming neighbor from Hopewell Junction, New York, and it works pretty well. So when he runs for president in 32, a big part of the new deal is that I'm going to put unemployed men to work planting trees all over America. And he wins, and he wins big. And in his inaugural address in March of 33, the nothing we have fear but fear itself, weeks later, his personal pet New Deal projects launched the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. From 1933 to 1942, these unemployed American men hired by the Roosevelt, uh, to be in Roosevelt's tree army, plant nearly 3 billion trees all across America. They, they, they would take kid from Newark and suddenly they'd find themselves in, in you know, um, Shenandoah in Virginia or out in uh, somebody from Gary, Indiana, suddenly working the canyon lands of the Colorado Plateau and 
part, also FDR saying every state needs a state park system. And it often gets missed, but our National Park Service developed all the state park systems in the United States. And the CCC provides the labor and they build boathouses, recreation areas, picnic areas, roads, bridal trails, stocked ponds, bird watching platforms, forest fire protection, killing bug infestation, on and on and on and on. I'm here in Denver. I can I can tell you so many things that the CCC did in your state. It would blow your mind. I'll just tell you two. They built Red Rocks Amphitheater here in Denver. That's all CCC Project Franklin Roosevelt. They built the road through Rocky Mountain National Park. CCC work crews, even in winter, up there that high, uh, operating out of Estes Park and building uh, that. You know, this is a revolution in land management and land planning, and Roosevelt's hands-on with it. He is at heart a planner. Eleanor Roosevelt would say, people think my husband's not an intellectual. They don't realize Franklin has a map mind. He read maps every day, all day. He loved conservation easements and limited interest conservation and where creeks run and watershed areas and migratory bird hotspots and canyons. And he just loved the map of America. And he spent most of his presidency just buzzing all around, driving all over America, seeing places. Not only does he do the CCC, but he'll start saving, doing, using that Antiquities Act of TRs over and over and over and over and over again. Um, he's only president in a few weeks, and he signs an executive order creating cedar breaks in Utah. You know, does like 10 times more land around arches in Utah. Creates uh, Capitol Reef National Monument. Today it's Capitol Reef National Park. Goes to Zion and quadruples the landmass around it and is providing all the resources to turn Utah into a national park state. A woman named Mervana Hamilton Hoyt was a, her husband died, her son died. She went to the desert, Mojave, and then went out to what's 29 Palms or, or you know, Palm Springs area today and the stars at night in the desert. And she decided, I'm going to save Joshua trees. All of the kids today, they do Burning Man out in the desert. But in those days, kids from L.A. would come out and pour gasoline on a Joshua tree and it would shoot up in the sky like a bonfire. And you'd purposely look for the biggest Joshua's to burn because it shoot up higher and um, they were all being destroyed. And she was working as a horticulture and a, a horticulturist and a worked for women's garden club of Pasadena came up with, got all these photos collected of Joshua trees and comes up that I want to create a million acre Joshua tree park. She gets a letter into the secretary of interior of FDR Harold Ickes and only weeks in office she gets her quick five-minute meeting with FDR in the White House. And she knew enough that Eleanor used to say Franklin is a sucker for photographs of beautiful places. So she had all of her photos ready as a grassroots environmental activist. And he's like, oh, my gosh. She was telling him about the trees because she knew he loved trees. And these, they're, you know, strange-shaped, you know. And he'd go, they were going through it all. And he said, oh, my gosh. She goes, okay, we'll do it. And she was like, whoa, uh, well, Mr. President, we, you want a Josh Tree? We'll, we'll do it. I'll sign it. Executive order. We'll create it. She goes, well, it's a little more complicated. There are railroads still have rights on these two sections here. And there's still mining claims in the million acres that I planned. He said, oh, I don't worry. But that's, lawyers can solve that later. I just do it, and then they'll figure it out. <laughs> she left stunned writing people in tears. Did he really just do this? Is the and, you know, this is what he would do all the time. Um, and it, it was very hubristic and very real. Now, that a million acres ended up coming in at 700,000 acres as Joshua Tree National Monument, today National Park. But that was after the lawyers looked and saw some areas. But he would just do it and do it and do it. He'd go down to like where I live in Austin, Texas, but he went down to the Gulf. He tried to make the entire Gulf Texas National Beach 
Um, and he went down to um, Aransas, Port Aransas on the Gulf to fish and saw all the migratory bird life there and all, found out more and more about it and saved an executive order to save the whooping crane as an endangered species, Aransas National Wildlife Refuge. Um, he went out to the Olympics in, Cal- in Washington State and big people wanted to timber the rain- rainforest there. Roosevelt's being toured around my Lake Crescent Lodge, if any of you know that area. And they're looking up there, and there is a hillside where somebody had clear-cut a hill, the trees. And in front of this whole little delegation, he stopped and said, who's responsible for that? And people are like, well, he goes, whoever did that, I hope they're roasting in hell. Because it was such awful forestry. He goes back and fights and creates Olympic National Park to have that big park up in Washington State. Texas, I mentioned. June 6, 1944, D-Day. The days before D-Day, FDR went to Charlottesville to hide. TR used to go to Charlottesville to hide. (laughs) There's a cabin in, in Charlottesville called Pine Knot that Theodore Roosevelt would go with the naturalist John Burroughs there in Birdwatch. FDR goes before D-Day to Birdwatch in Charlottesville with Pa Watson, uh, a military aide, his best friend, really. And um, he kind of comes in, doesn't want the media to think something big's happening on June 5th or 6th, comes back in. And do you guys realize on June 6th, the famous announcements of, about D-Day over the radio and all, he didn't cancel his meetings to create Big Bend National Park. It was founded on June 6, 1944. All the photos of him with land deeds and looking at where you'd set up visitor centers and all of this. Um, that's who you get Big Bend. Um, the whole state of Texas, where I live, every state parks Roosevelt. They'd build adobes. They'd build it always to have rustic architecture that fits into the landscape. Red Rocks here is a perfect example of the kind of work the CCC and the WPA as work relief agencies could do. Um, so I write about all this, um, the great, the fight for the Great Smoky Mountains National Parks of FDRs, the extraordinarily fight to save the Everglades, 1934, he gets it done, Okefenokee Swamp gets it done, Mammoth Cave, Kentucky gets it done, Isle Royale, Michigan gets it done. During World War II, the worst conservation battle was Roosevelt's executive order to save Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And save the whole valley with an executive order during the war. And the Republicans screamed bloody murder. Major senators said that FDR is Hitler. That's during, saying that to newspaper reporters, that he's just stealing land like Hitler would do. And they went after Roosevelt. And he, today, I don't hear people, everybody thinks Jackson Hole was right to be saved. Roosevelt always saw that these would bring money to the regions, that those scenic features had an economic advantage to them too i can go on and on with all of these things in the back of my book you'll see a list of all the places it's sort of mind-blowing that the new deal and uh, was able to protect and save during world war ii um he constantly saving wildlife refuges during the war but i'll give you an example of his mind with this pearl harbor first week december 1941 roosevelt weighs in on a, a, a really a left-wing environmental activist named Rosalie Edge who had, was working to save hawks, Hawk Sanctuary in Pennsylvania. Um, she did investigations and wrote that the trumpeter swans were being molested in Henry's Lake, Idaho. Um, Henry's Lake is 15 miles west of Yellowstone. And our country had created Roosevelt, the, the War Department, created a place that was our called the 10th Mountain Division to train our ski troopers and great skiers to go fight Hitler, Third Reich, to go to Europe in the Alps and Ardennes and the rest to winter. They did artillery training. They did cross-country skiing, downhill skiing. It was a $24 million facility up in Idaho. Um, and Rosalie Edge, this very far left activist writes, gets a letter into Harold Ickes through a newspaper reporter that says to Franklin Roosevelt, the trumpeter swan spends its winters at Henry's Lake because the lake doesn't melt because it's warm 
thermal waters and they stay there. And if these exercises continue, it will lead to the extinction of the trumpeter swan, which was already struggling with, you know, only hundreds left at that point. Um, 1941, Roosevelt looks into it and writes Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Dear Henry, I am now caught up on the war between the U.S. Army and the Trumpeters. I've looked in and investigated the situation, and I vote in favor of the Trumpeters. The U.S. Army must denest. Stimson went mad over this. This is insanity. And they kicked him out. And they, re, you know where they came here to Colorado, Camp Hale. That's why it's there. David Brower, later hero of the Sierra Club, was trained at Camp Hale as a ski trooper. But um, why is he doing that for the trumpeter swan in the, in the crucible of World War II? Because he's sending a very loud message to the War Department and to everybody. We are not in the war going to bust into our public lands and start clear-cutting, chopping, grabbing minerals, saying for the war effort that we don't keep these sanctuaries viable. These are for eternity, these places. These are for our children and our children's children. These are part of what American democracy is, our national parks, our national monuments, our wildlife refuges, and our state parks. And if there's going to be exercises and all, we will be specific on it. But we are not going backwards on animal protection after generations, meaning T.R. and himself, and their followers had saved all of this. They weren't going to ruin their, their accomplishment. And um, it just tells you how hands-on he was uh, about these things. I'll end by and open up to questions by telling you by 1944, I mean, when you're a historian, you know what we do is read other people's mail for a living. And sometimes you go to these presidential libraries or an archive and you're stunned by new documents you find. Up in FDR library, I found a letter Franklin Roosevelt wrote. It was kind of misfiled in a weird place to the Shah of Iran. There's another one to the King of Saudi Arabia, both different, not form letters, very personal with misspellings and all. And uh, But the gist of them both are, you know, let's just say to the Shah of Iran, um, you're, I've been now to your country and I see you guys have a real soil um, problem. And you, you don't have anywhere near enough trees. And I'm willing to put my personal effort in help you guys. I had to deal with the Dust Bowl. I had to do shelter belts and tree replantings and soil erosion projects. So I'm going to help you guys. If you want my advice, I'll be your free advisor to help you rehabilitate your landscapes. Or two Middle East leaders that during the war on a variation of that. He could not handle seeing land that was abused. It was a personal affront to him. And um, he, in 1945, or let's just call it the Christmas 44, January 45, he is now creating the United Nations, his great legacy. Do you guys realize that he hooked up with Gifford Pinchot, the old forester of Theodore Roosevelt, who's now in his 80s and had four heart attacks, is writing his memoir, Breaking New Ground, and the two of them go in cahoots and they're going to make the cornerstone of the United Nations a banner idea called conservation as the basis of permanent peace. Conservation as the basis of permanent peace. Franklin Roosevelt was pushing hard to create what today you would call a global environmental standard, that you had to have factory regulations on a global way, that you had to have water protection quality done globally, that you had to do wildlife protection globally, and that this was going to be a way to bring the United Nations together, that the world has a standard for natural resource management. Um, he are there in deep cahoots and there's some angry letters FDR writes war department and writes secretary the new secretary Cordell Hall who was secretary of state redesigned and Hall was going to was willing to accept Roosevelt's kind of cockamamie thing that he thought but he he was a kind of a rubber stamp for FDR but the new secretary of state came out of U.S. Steel and he was like ignoring Roosevelt's messages one letter FDR writes to Tinius and says um, you know damn it Edward I told you I'm dead serious about this wake people up at state this is the cornerstone being like TR on conservation and then he dies and he dies April 45 
Warm Springs, Georgia. And with it dies conservation as a basis for permanent peace. We still don't have global environmental standards like that. And nobody, he gets buried there at Hyde Park. But Harold Ickes knew that wasn't a proper, although the whole bit of the Hudson River Valley was proper. He wanted to do something more. And so in the United Nations, the founding of the UN is at the San Francisco Conference, May of 45, when all of the world's delegates, foreign ministers, all they all get to San Francisco to create the UN. They all shuttle up to Marin County to go to Muir Woods National Monument, where the giant redwood trees groves are, which Theodore Roosevelt created as a national monument using that Antiquities Act. And they went deep into the, Nash, the, the monument and to a beautiful cathedral grove and held their farewell ceremony for Franklin Roosevelt among the giant redwoods as a symbol of his, his lifelong commitment to conservation and his great love of the great trees of the world, which he thought were the symbol, the givers of life. That Roosevelt always felt that if you wanted to see poverty, all you have to do is see deforestation. If you want to go fly over Haiti and you see Dominican Republic today, you see it's forested and you almost see a line where Haiti's totally deforested on Hispaniola on the same island. And that trees, tree and proper forestry conservation was what the wealthy, if you were going to be a successful post-World World War country like Canada, like the United States, like Denmark, like Sweden, like Norway, like New Zealand, like Australia, you would have to have true conservation laws, regulations, and protections. And much of what we have in our country today, what makes us not just a bunch of strip malls and superhighways and glass towers, are the public lands that both Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt did so much to protect. We owe them both a, a great deal of gratitude that we had two visionaries in the White House in the 20th century to achieve that. Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.